Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. It's election day with dozens of municipal races on the ballot. In Connecticut, you have until 8 p.m. to vote in person. We hope you make it to the polls. When we think about our democracy, one of the most important foundations is freedom of the press. No longer do we have a president who calls journalists, quote, enemies of the people and tweets disinformation daily. But if you ask Americans their views on the press, we're still on shaky ground. Pew Research Center finds fewer Americans trust national news organizations over local news. And there's a big partisan divide between liberals and conservatives when it comes to trusting the press. How can journalists win back trust? And how can the press do a better job of serving more communities? Today, where we live, we focus on these questions and more. Later, we'll learn about engagement journalism and hear from one of Connecticut Public Radio's interns, Abby Levine, about why he's studying to be an engagement journalist. We also want to take your questions about the news you consume. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. You can share a comment or question on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is Doris Trong, Director of Training and Diversity at the Pointer Institute in Florida. Doris, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you. So Pointer has long been a resource for uh, journalists and for people interested in learning more about news and uh, how we come to make the decisions we do in newsrooms across the country. So tell me about your role and the work that you do. Yeah, so I work with um, organizations around the world, mostly news organizations, to help them uh, understand best practices and implement those, and also to understand the framework around which to make decisions as the world around us changes, because those best practices are always shifting. I'm glad that you mentioned that because we know, as you mentioned, the world around us is continuing to change. And so when we think about what uh, may have been guiding principles of journalism, I know when I started, I'm part of Gen X. So when I was thinking about my career and how I was trained in newsrooms, thinking about reporting and including both sides and thinking about being objective, journalists now, especially in the last few years, have been really looking at that and, and seeing that, you know, maybe these principles are flawed and considering that these principles have evolved. So can you talk about that? Yeah. So I did a little bit of research into objectivity, which is something that's actually like a hundred year old concept (laughs) that was put forth by two white men who are actually responding to coverage of the Russian revolution. Um, But it's ostensibly that they wanted to apply scientific principles to the reporting itself and not necessarily asking the people who are reporters to put aside their personal opinions about things, which is where things have gotten muddled in recent years, where there has been this expectation of neutrality by people who, by the very nature of us being people, 
have our own um, biases, whether they're implicit or explicit. So talk more about that, uh, because uh, for so long, uh, I know journalism and journalists have tried to, when they explain uh, the way they cover the news or how they write a story, that they're trying to be unbiased. But you just said that's impossible, right? We all have biases. Yeah, absolutely. I think a big part of it is that you do see journalism in popular culture. So people seem to think that they understand what it is to be a journalist. And of course, most times it's not nearly as exciting as um, shows would make you think it is. But there's also um, a lot of, um, there's a lot that we aren't as transparent with our audience about. For example, we don't necessarily use the same terminology to refer to something that is an opinion piece. That could be an op-ed, that could be a commentary, that could be a perspective, depending on which outlet you're looking at. And so we're asking our audiences to make this major leap of connecting all these different phrases that could mean different things, but sometimes they mean the same thing to different news organizations. Then we're asking our audience to kind of come along with us and understand that an analysis piece by design is intended to inject that person's perspective into interpreting the, the facts of the story. So if somebody is a, a political journalist and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, like so many Americans, uh, they choose to vote, you know, talk mm -hmm. through like what some of the expectations would be for someone who covers politics uh, pretty mm -hmm. regularly and the, the idea of, you know, they want to keep what their uh, political leanings are, maybe private, mm -hmm. or what party that they may be affiliated yeah. with. I know some journalists don't even, you know, they mm -hmm. they're unaffiliated because they don't want to uh, be to have that information come out to show that they have maybe a bias towards one party or the other. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point on election day. So, Len Downey, the former editor in chief of the Washington Post, where I worked for a long time famously did not vote. And it was it was for the reasons that you say, that he didn't want readers to be able to point to his voting record and say, well, this indicates some sort of bias on, on the behalf of the entire news organization. But, um, you know, civics was one of my favorite classes when I was going through high school. And I really think it's important for people to be engaged members of the citizenry. And I think one of the most important things for people who live in this country to do is to vote. That's that's exercising our civic, civic duty. There are many countries where people don't have the right to vote or not everybody has the right to vote. And you, know, you see these really bad voter turnout numbers in the United States. So um, I think that part of it is being able to set aside what might be something that you're particularly passionate about. So. I, free, I formerly had a coworker whose wife was running for a council seat that had something very specific to do with development. And so he recused himself from any stories that had to do with that developer. Um, and it's not because his wife running for that council seat was necessarily gonna affect how he would view those stories, but he just really wanted to have that extra distance. And it didn't mean that he probably didn't vote for his wife when it came time for the election. I'm sure he did, but he understood that he didn't want any um, anyone who was an audience member to really dig into it and say, this person who had a hand on, in the story then caused it to lean this way or the other for the developer because of this person's association with the council member. Mm. 
You're hearing Doris Chong here on Where We Live, Director of Training and Diversity at the Pointer Institute, as we talk about objectivity in newsrooms and um, how uh, this idea is being challenged because we know that as humans, we all have bias and to pretend that we don't when we cover our stories can be a disservice. And there's been a lot of criticism of journalism and um, also um, how the public consumes news, who they trust over the recent few years. And you can join us if you have a question about or an observation about uh, news that you consume, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Doris, talk about some of the conversations that are happening in newsrooms today uh, when we know, uh, when we saw what happened after Black Lives Matter, um, we saw what happened with the LGBTQ movement. And again, like what journalists are expected to cover and knowing that we have these natural biases, the conversations that newsroom leaders are having with their staff uh, when there is pushback about, you know, maybe as somebody on the side, when I'm not working, I might want to go to a protest. How should news leaders approach this? Yeah, there isn't really a blanket best practice on this. A lot of it is still evolving and a lot of it is kind of case by case. Um, Many times the news organizations want to have the distance from saying that their that their workers were on the site of a protest or a demonstration unless that person was actively covering it. And so um, you you would have to decide as somebody who is subject to that kind of standard at your news organization, is that something I feel comfortable with? And if not, then probably the, the thing to do is have a conversation with your your boss or your employer beforehand, rather than trying to explain later that you just went to go check out the scene, because that could be very hard to explain depending on who you're standing next to or what, what ends up happening that gets that gets recorded by any number of people, including other bystanders who aren't necessarily journalists. But, um, you know, there are lots of people who say, why can't I participate in an LGBTQ pride parade? That seems pretty neutral. And I know people who are older than me, I'm also Gen X, who will say that um, that that the, um, the the fight for gay rights was actually really controversial, that they lived through um, those seminal years in the 1960s. And so they don't think that a parade, even though it's celebratory and perhaps not as controversial today, is something that you should participate in regardless of where you stand on whether you're a member of the community or whether you want to be an ally. So um, I think part of it is just thinking through how much of yourself as a journalist do you also carry into your private life? And then is there a distinction that our audience may or may not make depending on what's happening? You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. These conversations that you mentioned, uh, Doris, you know, is there a generational uh, pull to this? Uh, again, I, I, I had mentioned I'm also Gen X, and so I'm thinking about the ways uh, my former news directors uh, trained me when I started out uh, in journalism. And as the world has shifted and how we think about the way we source, the way we decide to uh, cover stories, uh, who is involved, who is quoted, you know, it, always uh, thinking about both sides, you know, is that really effective today when we know, uh, you know, sometimes uh, there are sides that uh, peddle uh, misinformation and are we doing a, a service to the public when we elevate those, uh, those kind of comments? 
Yeah, so when we're trying to talk about multiple perspectives on something, it's usually not that there's that there's a limit to, to one or two perspectives, right? Um, and then the, the thing is to discuss whether we need to give equal time to the perspective that is potentially irresponsible, like misinformation about vaccination or, um, or you know, white nationalist sentiment. Do we need to give that equal time as something else um, if we're covering that story? And generally the answer is no. But if you're trying to include that, um, that other component, then usually fact-checking it within that same section of the story, and this could be a broadcast, it could be you know, a long-form piece, whatever, but um, adding the fact check can help people understand the context around why this is controversial and why that particular element has been included so that people don't necessarily read it and then take that as possible fact. I like that you brought up the fact check, but I'm also thinking about uh, newsrooms uh, that don't have a lot of people anymore and uh, not a lot of of staff or leadership or editorial oversight uh, to help uh, in these uh, decisions and, and, and how you've seen that impact coverage, Doris. Yeah, so we're still sort of, even though we're in 2021, still sort of struggling with the transition to digital, the digital era. And there's still kind of this desire to get as many clicks as possible. And so part of that is churning out as much content as we can. And what that means is you've got, as, as you get fewer and fewer people trying to do more and more things, then you have um, fewer and fewer layers of checking and um, less time to spend on that content. So it might be time to kind of retrench, think through what can we, especially in local newsrooms, do that national and international newsrooms aren't doing. And that would be covering the, the news that's happening at a ground level in our local areas and covering that in detail and depth that people outside the, the, that area are not going to understand all of the context around it. So perhaps not trying to constantly be first and constantly be churning out content but thinking about what are the best ways in which we can serve our audience with something that actually matters, something that is actually gonna provide them with ways to um, enrich the way that they go about their lives or enrich their understanding of the lives of other people around them. Coming up, we're gonna talk more about engagement journalism, censoring the voices of community members, hearing about what they want uh, their uh, news sources to cover, and not just uh, quoting or following uh, the voices of people in power uh, to dictate uh, what is in the news. Uh, before we get to that, uh, when we think about also representation, how newsrooms, uh, Doris, are wrestling with when they think about sourcing, but also the people in uh, their newsrooms and being better about changing hiring practices, trying to be more diverse in representation, not just on race and ethnicity and gender, but also geographically too. Uh, where we grow up and where we come from has a lot to do with um, some of the stories and people that we gravitate towards because of our natural biases. And so talk a little bit about what you're seeing in newsrooms and how those conversations are shifting. Yeah, so there has been um, a much more pronounced movement to have greater diversity in hiring. We have seen people like NBC say that they are committing to 50% um, journalists of color on their staff. Um, we've seen that Gannett is wanting to have representation that um, I think might be equal to their audience by 2025. 
And so there are these specific targets and numbers that news organizations are putting around hiring, which is great. Um, but then we don't necessarily have the, the veil lifted to see where they're going to look for staffers. If they're continuing to use the same the same pipeline that they've always had, then that excludes people who don't come in through that, that means, which might be HBCUs. It might be Hispanic serving institutions. It might be people who could be really promising journalists, but don't have a formal college education, which, um, which, which is an interesting state for journalists to be in because um, like 80% of journalists have at least a four-year degree, but only 30% of um, American workers do. So we're, we're at this elite level of education among journalists versus the majority of our audience. We're going to keep talking with Dora Strong, again, Director of Training and Diversity at Pointer Institute here on Where We Live. We're taking a deep dive into journalism today, and we're going to learn more about how best practices are evolving and how news organizations are rethinking the way they report the news from the ground up. If you have questions about journalism or the news that you consume, you can join us 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. So how does a topic make it onto your social media news feed or favorite news app or on the show you're listening to right now? Our local talk show is connected to our traditional newsroom, but we function a bit differently. We have meetings twice a week where we consider our topics together as a team. We peg shows to news events or discussions happening locally or nationally. But we also take ideas from listeners and Connecticut residents who reach out. And before the pandemic, we did much a better job of going into the community to talk with Connecticut residents instead of waiting for them to reach out to us. Now, whether you hear, watch, or read the news, it's 
common to see the perspectives of people in power centered in stories. Should the press spend more time talking to the community about what issues and stories matter to them versus centering stories on the views of policymakers? Now, before we get to these questions, we wanted to hear from one of our interns at Connecticut Public about why he decided to study journalism. This is Abi Levine. I started the Engagement Journalism program at the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism at CUNY during the pandemic. At that time, I had no idea what engagement journalism was, but given my background working with kids and families, I wanted to integrate community building into my journalism trajectory. I learned that engagement seeks to build relationships first and then write stories. Or if, say, care workers in nursing homes need safety updates during a pandemic, I could send them text updates about vaccines, testing, and emergency pay. Journalism needs to find ways not just to intellectually engage a privileged class of people, but also to tailor information to diverse communities who might not see themselves in the news. Traditionally, a journalist's proximity to their sources has been seen as an impediment to objective, rigorous coverage. Yet keeping an arm's length from communities stymies grassroots voices and maintains a top-down, dominant perspective. Pioneering journalists such as the late Ida B. Wells, who documented lynching campaigns, point out where imagined mythologies break down along lines of race, class, gender, and citizenship. Ideally, our stories offer a glimpse of a more just, evolving reality. Engagement journalism values community needs, concerns, and priorities as essential to nuanced reporting. We use surveys, in-person events, and online forums to develop reciprocal relationships between newsrooms and audiences. I'm currently crafting a bilingual newsletter that furthers racial equity work by moms whose kids have been marginalized in schools. Truthfully, I'm still trying to determine where I fit into the media. I love the challenge of telling stories, of seeking out words that offer orientation, yet stories don't mean much without relationships. I'd like to envision a future where I can innovate to make news more inspiring, self-critical, and holistic. That was Abby Levine. Thank you, Abby, for sharing that with us, a CUNY student in the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism and intern here at Connecticut Public. Uh, we're talking about journalism today with my guest, Doris Trong, Director of Training and Diversity at Pointer Institute. And joining us now is Kristen Muller, Chief Content Officer at Southern California Public Radio, which includes KPCC and the LAist. Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So we just heard from Ubi to talk about you know, his engagement journalism program and what he hopes uh, to do, uh, not just now, but also in the future. And he described engagement journalism for us. And so I wanted you to respond uh, to what he shared and, and how you would define it for our listeners. Sure. First, I'd say congratulations on hiring such a great intern. <laughs> it sounds like he's got a very strong idea about uh, how journalism should be practiced. And I, I think what he described as engagement journalism is, is very uh, close to the way I would describe it. I mean, I think simply it really is just a practice that emphasizes ways to close the gap between the communities you cover and the newsroom you're in. It thinks about... Uh, how to frame stories, how to choose stories, how to distribute stories in new ways, uh, prioritizes shaping stories with community members and serving people who may not already be consuming your journalism. So let's talk about that, that last point, uh, to engage with people who may not be consuming your journalism. So how um, does engagement journalism reach those people who may not read or listen or watch uh, their uh, local news outlets? Well, this, this gets to like the heart of the matter. I mean, I think 
this requires reaching people, reaching communities who don't already have trust in, in your organization or trust in your uh, journalism. And by the way, many communities don't have trust in mainstream media for very good reasons historically. I think it's really important to think about what is the news you're making and how does it uh, relate to people's lives. So if you're going to be trying to reach communities that don't have an existing relationship with you, you've got to go in, as my colleague Ashley Alvarado says, you've got to go in with a give before you have an ask. And so giving, giving news and information that is meaningful means really listening to understand what is the thing that you can provide, what is the kind of news and information that people need to be better advocates for themselves. And often it means really thinking outside the box in terms of not only the content you're producing, but how you're distributing it. So for example, we uh, did a project several years back where we were trying to reach uh, uh, black mothers, of, uh, young, young, <laughs> black mothers of young children ages zero to five. And when we looked at our uh, the demographics of our radio station, you know that that just wasn't a cohort that was there in any significant number. So we had to go out into the community, talk to uh, you know librarians, uh, community leaders, people that were trusted messengers of information, and ask them how to best reach people. And so what we ended up doing is printing stories on leaflets, leaving it in doctors' offices. Uh, we actually did a direct mail campaign uh, in, in conjunction with a demographer at USC. We tried to target households that we thought uh, had had folks living in that would be rel- uh, be interested in this story. And, you know, we, we actually were successful in reaching people who were never going to tune into us on the radio with this news and information. And it was it was a really good proof of concept to say if we if we do it right, we can build bridges where there aren't any currently. Kristen, you said that you were successful. Were you able to sustain uh, those um, those uh, new readers and listeners uh, beyond uh, the, the the current uh, strategy that you put out there when you're working on these particular stories? Are they are they still listening and reading and watching? That is a great question, Lucy, and it really is the question, right? Because all these all these projects, all this work at building bridges uh, is only meaningful if it is a sustainable and not the work of a single person or team. It has to be built into the organization. So in that particular case, yes, we have managed uh, to uh, maintain ties and trust with with, uh, that group of women. Uh, Many of them opted into a texting service that our early childhood reporting team runs. So we are still uh, in touch uh, and offering news and information about early childhood and uh, and child development to that to that group, and in turn relying on them for news and information. You know what is happening in their world and what would be good for us to know so we can amplify it. Um, the project that we we announced a project last week uh, with the support of the Knight Foundation and involving several other radio stations, including uh, WBEZ in Chicago, WBUR in uh, Boston, and Minnesota Public Radio, and. And the project really aims to kind of solve what you're asking, which is how do we, how do, how does this work of engagement journalism become tied to the way the organization thinks of its future? So not just in bringing in more community members and narrowing the gap between us and our, uh, and our neighborhoods, but also how do we make it key to our revenue strategy? Which at the end of the day, you know, if if we can't make things sustainable. Um, you know, it's it's hard to justify doing 
a lot of our activities if they're not if they're not directly speaking to our sustainability because like other newsrooms even though we're public radio and nonprofit we do of course have the same resource challenges that other local newsrooms have so who are the journalists doing the work uh, Kristen uh, you know we've seen uh, newsrooms uh, recently uh, in the last few years where if they want to do a better job of covering uh, the black uh, community they make sure that they hire a black journalist or if there's uh, a Hispanic Latino community that has been overlooked uh, there are newsrooms that you know while they may not say they're looking for a particular person to cover it they're looking to expand uh, you know who's covering these communities and often it's journalists of color is that a right approach it's a good question i mean i think of this work um first of all it's it's long-term work it's not something that you decide to do on a monday and you know check off the box by the following friday i think in order to in order to go into communities where you where we don't have trust I don't, I don't think it's so much, um, you know, I, I think about the skills that are needed more than, you know, the, the kind of demographic profile of the individual, um, although that certainly helps. I mean, having the ability to speak uh, Spanish or Mandarin in L.A., you know, there are almost 200 languages spoken here. So having fluency in those languages is important. Um but there are many communities we're not going to, you know, we're, we're just not going to be able to reach. So in cases like that, you know, I think more broadly of the local news ecosystem and, and how are those communities getting their information and news? And, and maybe there are partnerships there. Um, for the coverage of the census, we partnered with about two dozen ethnic and in-language media outlets in Los Angeles for this very reason. Um, we, were, we didn't have... Uh, we didn't have staff members who um, spoke Vietnamese, for instance, which, you know, is a huge population here in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, that was that was one way we thought here's a way to build a bridge. So we end up publishing a lot of content and distributing it to other local news outlets. And in turn, we ask, you know, just let us know what issues are top of mind for the communities you're covering so that we can produce journalism that reflects that. You're hearing uh, Kristen Muller again, Chief Content Officer at Southern California Public Radio, as we learn more about engagement journalism. Doris Strong is still with us, Director of Training and Diversity at Pointer Institute. Doris, can you talk about uh, what I had just asked Kristen about these specific beats and uh, ways to reach uh, particular communities, but is there a danger in tokenizing these beats? Yeah, absolutely. So we've also seen that sort of as a result of the racial reckoning after George Floyd's murder, a lot of news organizations have um, launched or maybe decided to expand their race beat. And I think what we see happening there is that the hiring managers have in mind a very specific kind of person they want to hire. And so if they're trying to cover Black communities, it feels like it would be more transparent to say that's what we're trying to do is build out um, better coverage of black communities in our in our area. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a black reporter to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that what Kristen was talking about in terms of establishing trust, especially in communities that might have been, uh, been perceived that they were poorly served by your organization in the past, that's really important. And that really starts from the organization level. So we have seen some news organizations have very public apologies for decades or, or generations of 
um, insufficient coverage of various neighborhoods. So, um, you know, when you talk about whether whether it's appropriate to potentially pigeonhole somebody into covering something, so perhaps sending a Hispanic reporter to cover a Spanish-speaking area, you've got to ask that reporter, ideally, whether that's something that they want to do and are even qualified to do. People sometimes look at my last name and presume that I should go into um, Vietnamese enclaves. And the thing is, I don't speak Vietnamese. Um, it's, a, it's, it's not culturally foreign to me, but um, elders who speak Vietnamese are usually immediately put off that I don't speak Vietnamese. And so you probably would have been better served sending somebody who doesn't speak Vietnamese, who isn't even Asian, to go talk to them because they give that person a little bit more leeway for not knowing Vietnamese, whereas they think that um, you know, they make a lot of judgments about me without really thinking through the context of why I might not speak Vietnamese. So, you know, sending me in to certain certain situations actually puts me and the community we're trying to reach at a disadvantage. I wanted to bring up a, a, a listener a tweet, uh, Kathy, uh, and this links to what we were just talking about. Kathy writes that, um, you know, often she observes a big difference in coverage when a disabled journalist covers an issue versus when someone without a disability does. And so can we can we talk about, about that more, about rep, why representation matters and, you know, getting at the, the heart of, of a story or to understand a community better? You know, sometimes it, it, knowing where they come from, from a personal standpoint, can help in that reporting doors. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting um, piece of it, too, is the... Um, Covering disabled people is something that um, needs a lot more attention in our news organizations. Um, I think that we don't have particularly good data on how many journalists in our news organizations or how many freelancers are disabled. There are lots of different ways to, um, to, to categorize disability. But when we look around um, at society in general, a lot of things are not necessarily ADA compliant. Um, so you might see that there's a ramp and it turns out it's 30 degrees, which is, which is not really um, an angle at which somebody could feasibly use a wheelchair. So um, there, there are things like that. There are issues of um, how accessible is something if we are going to use a, a text to speech program. So there's been a meme recently where there's red flags being used on social media and people have pointed out that if you're using a text-to-speech reader, having 15 red flags is really annoying because it's just going to say red flag 15 times in a row. Um, so thinking through that, thinking through is everything that we're producing in terms of content as accessible as possible on as many different kinds of platforms as possible. And then, um, you know, having somebody who has had those experiences um, throughout their lifetime can add that extra perspective into the story. You know, earlier we talked about objectivity and how uh, newsrooms are thinking about this uh, in recent years. And, and we heard from a listener who was disappointed and to her, it sounded like we were giving up on the principle of objectivity. But I don't think that's what you're saying, Doris. Did you want to clarify that? Because as journalists, we're always looking uh, to be as accurate as possible to arrive at the truth, as Andrea says, uh, is an important uh, uh, goal. And so can you talk more I mean, how you respond uh, to her comment? Yeah, so I think that it's just important for us as journalists to recognize that each of us brings our own filters into how we do our reporting. So even if I interview 10 people, depending on the length of the story, I might only be able to quote three of them. And then how much of that quoting am I putting into the story? 
So you're only seeing a certain amount of it through that filter anyway. But I think that journalists are trying to provide our audience with enough information so that they can make their own decisions, so they can come to their own conclusions about things. Like, we're not necessarily, unless it's an opinion piece, telling you who to vote for in the mayoral race. We're trying to give you enough information about each of the mayoral candidates so that you can make an informed decision should you decide to go out and vote. Uh, Kristen Miller, you're with us. You're one of your newsroom uh, leaders. Uh, talk through uh, what Dora shared and how we approach objectivity. Well, I think, you know, Doris is is absolutely right. I mean, I think this is a, a key a, a key thing to note that objectivity has been defined by white men. Uh, and it's interesting, you know, as I do field a lot of uh, reader and listener calls, and I, I can tell you that, you know, when I hear phrases uh, or complaints that something is not objective, I mean, it, it usually is really just through the lens of someone who has experienced that, meaning, you know, kind of what what Doris was saying earlier, like you you want someone with disabilities reporting, um, reporting in your newsroom because they're bringing a, a different set, uh, you know, they're bringing their perspective. In a, in a room that may not have it. I mean, for instance, you know, we um, we have an, an unhoused communities reporter and and that reporter was formerly unhoused and he goes into those communities and and he sees things differently. He sees things that someone else might not. And so having as many different types of experiences and points of view in the newsroom as possible, I think really helps really helps this uh, the audiences and the readers kind of get a deeper understanding of issues that they they might not have otherwise had. And could someone say that our our reporter can't be objective because he was once unhoused? I mean, that seems ludicrous to me. So I, I think we have to really differentiate between objectivity and fairness. You know, journalism strives to be fair and accurate and increasingly transparent. And I think those are the values we need to put more emphasis on as opposed to objectivity. Again, you've been hearing Kristen Muller, Chief Content Officer at Southern California Public Radio. Uh, she came in, came on to talk about uh, this new engagement journalism model with uh, partnering with other public radio stations. We'll be interested to follow up to see how it goes, Kristen. Thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Doris Tronglober will stay with us. She's Director of Training and Diversity at Pointer Institute. As we continue to talk about uh, journalism, after the break, a UConn journalism professor will join us to talk about um, what she's teaching students in the classroom and how professors are addressing uh, principles of journalism in our world that continues to change. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're talking about journalism today. With us on Zoom, Doris Strong, Director of Training and Diversity at Pointer Institute. And joining us now is Amanda Crawford, UConn Assistant Professor of Journalism and also a veteran political reporter. Amanda, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. 
So you've been listening uh, to our uh, conversation. You know, uh, how would you respond to some of uh, the points that have been raised about objectivity and um, this idea at one point that it's important to have both sides in a story and, and how that is changing? Well, I think that rote objectivity has just led to, st or did at a certain point lead to stenography. And this idea that we had this both sidism, the idea we had to give equal time to both sides of an issue. And that uh, really narrowed our, I think, what journalism was able to accomplish and how we're able to deal with uh, emerging threats like misinformation. Um, it's not our role as journalists to show two sides of an issue, first off, because there's many, many sides. And so that often led us to leaving lots of voices out. Um, and also, I think as we see, you know, we're in this misinformation and disinformation time, it's really important to recognize that we're not doing a service to our, our readers or viewers or listeners if we're giving equal time to, uh, uh, to a point um, or a perspective that is rooted not in the facts. Um, and so I think that, you know, over time, this idea, this laudable idea of objectivity, of leaving opinions out of it, which is a really important, um, you know, role for journalists to play and a perspective to have when we're doing something like covering policy or policy proposals. But it, it also over time led a kind of journalism that wasn't serving our readers. Um, I always think back to climate change. It's not, it's not serving our readers or seeking the truth to give equal side to scientists versus a congressman with a snowball, you know, so. Oh. How are your students responding to these changing themes? You know, what has gotten them interested in journalism? Is this something that, you know, they want to continue with? Well, I'll say that a lot of students don't see journalists as being objective. And so they grew up in an age of, you know, in, incredible polarization and partisanship. And so a lot of my youngest students don't see that journalists were objective. Um, and so they kind of see through that ruse, you know, that, that we have long maintained this objectivity while being anything but objective um, by, by, you know, only really showing that white male gaze, which is where the root of the idea of objectivity is, as I think Doris noted earlier, had, you know, came from. And so they value things like truth and seeking the truth and, you know, challenging power. But I don't know that they have the same idea of um, objectivity that maybe journalists from an older um, generation does have. Mm -hmm. Considering the generational differences, is there a danger of conflating activism with journalism? Oh, absolutely. Um, a lot of my students do see journalism as activism. And, I, you know, I can I can see that perspective. There is an activist root in journalism. There is, you know, fighting for the truth could be seen as an activist cause, but it's not advocacy. And I think that's where the danger comes in of conflating the two. You said something earlier about, you know, you don't want a journalism to just be stenography. And I was thinking about, you know, all of the discussions in the last uh, few years, uh, most recently after the murder of George Floyd, how relationships between police and communities have traditionally been covered and what has changed. And if we're thinking about, you know, doing our job and um you know, reaching all different perspectives, you know, uh, prior to um, the, the social justice reckoning, uh, was there more reliance on let's just report what the police report said? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I've long made sure that I've taught my students, you know, to, to be skeptical of anything that anyone in power is telling them. And I think that's an important value for journalists to have. Um, you know, that's not activism necessarily, but it is um, thinking about what we do as journalists in a different way, which is you can't trust everything the police say. Um, you know, they're, they're human as well. And you have to question and look for the truth, no matter what sources you're dealing with. Doris, so you're still with us. You know, how do you respond to what Amanda has shared so far? Yeah, I think that a lot of the things that she said, I absolutely agree with. I think that it's um, really important for journalism and journalists to continue to challenge power. Like, that's one of the key functions of journalism is to hold the powerful to account. And so um, it's interesting that she notes that, that the students that she's encountering didn't necessarily think that journalists have ever been objective. Um, I think it is also important for us as journalists to really think through the stock that we put into any kind of expert sources, um, especially police, um, you know, in, in reference to the, the things that you've talked about there. Um, you know, we as journalists have had a, a long, long history of thinking that we've got some sort of protection if we say, oh, the police said blank. And that doesn't necessarily provide us with any kind of cover. Um, unless we do some further reporting, unless we get more information from other sources, unless we're able to potentially inject some skepticism into what is being said by perhaps all of the sources, then we're not necessarily doing a service to the public either. Amanda Crawford, this is where investigative uh, journalism, uh, uh, the importance of that uh, comes into play. Can you can you talk about that and also your personal career before you became a journalism professor? Yeah, um, I was a, a political reporter at the Baltimore Sun, the Arizona Republic and Bloomberg News. Um, and I think that you know, investigative journalism is at the root of, you know, a lot of what we do to hold the power accountable. Um, and it's extremely important. And I do think that my students see the importance of investigative journalism. Um, you know, and that that is at the, the core of um, how we make a difference in our community and how we hold the powerful accountable. Um, and, and it also is a way to get away from that, um, that idea of stenography. You know, we, we've got to move away from just writing down, as Doris said, what the police said, and um, portraying that as truth. We have to instead really dig into what's happening in our communities and our world. You know, a lot of people get excited about investigative journalism for good uh, good reason. But when we think about just also traditional reporting, uh, so when you talk about uh, like accountability, you know, going to those city council meetings, you know, still the, the function of our job sometimes is, you know, we, that's where we get our information too, and that's where we can ask more questions or find out what the community um, is thinking about a particular issue or going to them to ask them about something that they, you might hear at a, at, a, at a board meeting, which isn't always sexy, right? <laughs> Right, but it's putting in the time, right? We right. do have to be there, be in our community, and be a presence as journalists. And as we're talking about building trust and being more representative of our communities, um, you know, being there and putting in the time and listening to what people have to say, and then digging, digging into public records, um, you know, and finding out what's really happening is, is a huge service. Uh, tell me about some of the core classes that you teach, including, I understand, uh, the history of the press. How do you incorporate some of these ideas that we've talked about in the show? 
Yeah, this semester I'm teaching the Press in America, which is a large general education lecture here on campus at the University of Connecticut. Um, we have 90 students in that class, and most of them are not journalism majors. Um, so that's been a really interesting class to see how young people view journalism and to help you know guide them in their understanding of the media. Um, so one of the things that I've done in that class is kind of reshaped it so that we started with modern day journalism, the challenges that we face and, you know, a, a lack of trust, um, diminishing resources, economic challenges, and, you know, all the issues of social media and misinformation that, that, that we're struggling with as journalists and, and we're seeing in our society. So I'm starting there and then rewinding to colonial America, um, going through the importance and talking about the, the role of the press and, you know, the early United States um, up through, you know, yellow, the First Amendment and yellow journalism and the muckrakers, which, you know, does get journal, get students really excited about journalism to really look at that kind of, um, you know, the birth of that reporting of holding um, the power accountable and, you know, being that voice for the people. And we I'll take that forward and look at um, the idea of objectivity, how it grew up with the professionalization of the media in the early 1900s, and how it both served and didn't serve um, our readers, our communities, our, our audiences. Um, you know, we'll be talking in the next couple of weeks about things like, you know, Walter Cronkite, you know, calling out the truth about Vietnam and how does that jibe with this idea of objectivity that American journalists were embracing at that time. And so looking at both, you know, the value of it, but also where it's fallen short over time, including how um, under the veil of objectivity, we've ignored communities and perpetuated racism and sexism and, and other ills. Uh, Doris Chong has been with us as well. We've just got about under a minute, Doris. Uh, did you want to uh, wrap up with maybe some final thoughts on the conversation we've had today? Yeah, so um, what Amanda was just saying kind of jogged my thoughts into um, as we look at who used to have power to cover things like the civil rights movement, um, you know, and that and how that continues today to be that uh, the vast majority of people who are in those authority making positions in newsrooms are white men that cover that that influences what makes it out to the audiences. And so the more we can get different perspectives into leadership into providing that content for our audiences, the more different kinds of news are going to get out there, the more our audiences will feel like they're represented in the stories, the more they can be engaged in being full participants in their own communities. Doris Trong, again, is Director of Training and Diversity at Pointer Institute. Thank you for your time, Doris. We really appreciated it. Amanda Crawford is also with us, UConn Assistant Professor of Journalism and a veteran political reporter. Amanda, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Special thanks to Connecticut Public Intern Abby Levine. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. <laughs>